Well, if you haven't figured it out over the last two years, we're being lied to by the institutions that we're supposed to blindly trust, and we're being lied to bigly, to put it as Trump would. Um, we have a very special guest in studio, Dr. Robert Malone, probably public enemy number one in the medical establishment as well as the government, uh, the most canceled man in the world, coming on to share with us about um, COVID, COVID-19. Uh, he gives his kind of his bio that's really incredible. We talk early treatment, vaccines, all the other things that are going on. Uh, and I've got Dr. Jordan Vaughn here to help me with this interview. You're not going to want to miss it. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. Thank you thank you so much for joining us. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO uh, of 1819 News and host of this here podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by a very special co-host. Uh, Dr. Jordan Vaughn has uh, agreed to come in and help me interview uh, Dr. Robert Malone. Jordan, uh, if you guys aren't familiar with him, he's the CEO of MedHelp here in Birmingham and also co-founder uh, and, and co-executive director of Concerned Doctors of Alabama. He's a hero in his own right, has risked his license and um, all kinds of things, his reputation, everything in order to put his hands on people and treat people and give them the uh, the things that they need basically to survive, uh, you know, this whole COVID situation and the, the false narrative that is. And so glad to have him on. Jordan, thanks so much for coming in. Good to see you, Brian. Glad to be here. Well, and we are very honored uh, to have uh, Dr. Robert Malone, who is, um, to a lot of people, needs no introduction, but... Uh, to some of our listeners that may not be familiar, Dr. Malone is an internationally recognized scientist and physician and the, the inventor of mRNA vaccination as a technology, DNA vaccination, and multiple non-viral DNA and RNA mRNA platform delivery technologies. He holds numerous fundamental domestic and foreign patents in the fields of gene delivery, delivery formulations, and vaccines, including for fundamental DNA and RNA mRNA vaccine technologies. So his official bio is, is very long and distinguished, as it should be, um, but I'm going to invite him here uh, in a minute to just kind of give a brief overview of his history, who he is, where he was born, his education, all of those things, and then we'll dive right into kind of the subject matter. Dr. Malone, welcome. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here and have a good uh, chin wag with the two of you. Uh, uh, one has been sheared and the other hasn't, so I, I feel comfortable here. Yes. Uh, and um, in, in you wanted me to kind of go over my bio briefly. Sure. Yeah. If you want to um, I, I jump was, in there. I was, I was born in the old Stanford Hospital in Palo Alto. Uh, grew up along the West Coast. My dad was a electrical engineer, defense contractor. Uh, grew up in Goleta, California, which is just north of Santa Barbara, right along the coast in Central California, Central Coast of California. Uh, I've lived all over the world. I've lived in Switzerland. Um, I spent a lot of time in Portugal. Uh, um, I, as an academic, I went to Northwestern University in Chicago. I went, I trained at the Salk Institute Molecular Biology and Virology Labs in La Jolla. Uh, um, UC Davis, I spent much of my training in. I got my bachelor's in biochemistry uh, at UC Davis. And also took all of the molecular biology. They didn't even have molecular biology as a coursework uh, major then. Um, and uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was in the laboratory that made the initial discoveries about the role of retroviruses in a AIDS-like syndrome in non-human primates. 
I've been a primate center investigator. I was an academic for over a decade at both at uh, UC Davis Department of Pathology, uh, U Maryland, uh, Baltimore School of Medicine Department of Pathology, and then uh, Uniform Services of the Health Sciences, that's the DOD uh, Medical School in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, as a associate professor of surgery, uh, where I built a breast cancer research program. Amazing. Uh, I've done multiple startups, uh, usually in this kind of delivery space. Uh, I uh, One of them is still ongoing. It's called Inovio. It's located in San Diego. Uses technology that was developed in my laboratory involving pulsed electrical fields. And uh, perhaps most importantly for the general audience, before all of this, I was a farm hand and a carpenter. Uh, and I'm, I'm very proud of, of uh, some of the buildings that I've, uh, homes that I've worked on. Uh, and um, uh, I, I kind of grew up as a young man working lemon uh, in avocado orchards. And I still run with my wife. This is our sixth small farm uh, here in Virginia along the base of the Shenandoah National Park, uh, a uh, farm of about 40, 45 acres, half of which we lease, uh, I guess 30 of which we own, that uh, produces some of the best Lusitano horses in North America. Lusitano is a Portuguese breed that's really successful in dressage. So uh, we produce horses, and it's not a hobby. We run it like a business. Otherwise, we'd go broke. Yeah. Uh, we're not rich people. Uh, and, and we produce a really high-quality product. Our horses, when they drop, the foals sell for in the range of 15 to 20. Oh, wow. And then it goes from there. Uh, so so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm deep, deep, deep in the Department of Defense and federal government as a contractor, for years, ever since uh, I joined Dineport Vaccine Company right after the anthrax attacks as the associate clinical director. So I've worked on almost all of the major biodefense products. I did the diligence for the smallpox vaccine, um, particularly the adverse events for DOD when those were being deployed. So I know all about the monkeypox vaccine and, and the associated technologies. Uh, I've uh, in addition to having been an academic, I've now been a consultant for a couple of decades and uh, have uh, deep training in uh, regulatory affairs in clinical research. And a few years ago, completed a, a fellowship at Harvard Medical School as a global clinical research scholar. So I've, I've won over $2 billion, won or managed over $2 billion in federal contracts I've often been called in to head large study sections for the, in the range of 80 to $120 million contracts for biodefense for NIH. Um, I have uh, security clearance in DOD. Uh, I have worked uh, and co-published in the past with uh, multiple members of the intelligence community. Uh, so uh, I'm, I, I get the government, I get academia, I get uh, startups. I've worked for pharma. I've actually worked for a Bill and Melinda Gates funded organization early on uh, called Eris Global TB Vaccine Foundation. Doesn't exist anymore. It was one of the first wave. And I've also worked for PATH, which is one of the core uh, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, operations out of Seattle. So I kind of know all this space. I've lectured at the World Health Organization in Geneva um, and was uh, really instrumental in leading uh, 
bringing forward the uh, Canadian Ebola vaccine and then eventually getting it sold to Merck on behalf of the Department of Defense and New Link Genetics. Uh, so I, I kind of know this whole area. Yeah. And so I've a million reasons why I wanted to have you come on, but I think the, the, the most of which, and I think Jordan would, would agree with me on this. You're, you're essentially the foremost authority on what we're going through on this virus, everything from COVID to monkeypox vaccines, to early treatment, all of these different issues. Um, this has been your playground for your whole career. Um, and until you became public enemy number one with the the government and the medical establishment, you were actually really well-respected, if not the most respected. I, I, I like to say I'm the most censored man in the world. There you go. <laughs> kind of looks like the most interesting man in the world, too, yeah, from the Dose Ace commercials. Play on that. <laughs> yeah. uh, just wait for it. There's a couple of videos to come out. So, oh, I can't uh, wait. Just park that for now. Well, good. Um, again, guys, we're going through some of this stuff kind of quickly because I want to respect Dr. Malone's time. We're grateful that uh, he's sharing it with us. and We want to pack as much information in as we can. Um, the two topics I want to cover before handing it over to Jordan to get into some of his, uh, stuff that I'm sure that's going to be a lot more, uh, heady and knowledgeable and educated than, than some of my simple questions, uh, is the, the subject of early treatment and vaccination. And so, um, you know, the, 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 how I kind of came into seeing this stuff the way that I have is, is, was watching Dr. Pierre Corey on Joe Rogan talk about ivermectin uh and i think he had brett weinstein on there too on that episode and just the ridiculousness of the fact that we had a cheap um affordable effective way uh to to treat this virus um both as a prophylactic which means basically as a preventative uh and also um you know early treatment um and that uh, among a, a bunch of other things that that have been proven to help and the fact that it was being pushed back against so heavily um, while the vaccine that was not proven, not effective. And, and some of the other, what was the other? Well, um, I mean, I would say the safety was the biggest thing. I yeah. mean, you know, the, the reality was even if ivermectin or uh, and other of these medicines didn't work at minimum, they weren't hurting people. Yeah. And I think that was one of the things that was the biggest thing. Why are you yeah. chastising a medicine versus, you know, a lot of the other EU aid products um, the data we have on them is not as robust as there are on these medicines we've had around for many years. Yeah. So, and um, what were the, the the two other treatments in hospital that was being used? One of them was effective. Was it Regeneron? Was the well, one? Was it Remdes Remdesivir, Remdesivir is one of them. And actually, that kind of goes back uh, to some things I'll ask him in terms of okay. Barrick have actually already using that in, historically. But um, it's that. And then the the really the knowledge. I think one of the things that I've kind of realized about the disease is that it's a it's primarily an endothelial and vascular disease in terms of its complications. And and it was just kind of instead treated like a typical viral pneumonia, which it wasn't. And I think that may be something that Dr. Malone can can talk to in terms of um, and I think some of that's what we're seeing even in the vaccine itself in, in terms of uh, the vascular complications that come from it and some people having significant adverse events. Yeah. So so if you could, Dr. Malone, talk about um, watching the pushback against the early treatment. Is that unprecedented? Have you ever seen anything like that before? Again, you don't want to, you know, assert motives to people, but kind of your speculations as to why. So it turns out there is a historic precedent for what we've all experienced. And it was in the pushback that happened around Lyme disease okay. and intravascular treatment of Lyme disease with uh, antibiotics. And a number of physicians also were attacked by their boards and lost their licenses in that context. And the driver there seems to have been the insurance companies 
that together with pharma that were unhappy about the costs that were being incurred for these intravascular treatments that were uh, off-label effective, uh, if you believe the um, case reports and physician reports and patient reports, but not uh, formally approved for that indication. Uh, of course, Lyme is basically an orphan disease, uh, particularly this chronic Lyme. But uh, we have seen something very similar to what's happening now, but never on this scale. In terms of pandemics, I've, I've been directly involved in managing and at the tip of the spear for, I don't know, six of these at least now. And uh, I've never seen anything like it, neither of my peers. Uh, I um, got my team kicked off. Uh, we were working on uh, for Department of Defense, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, on uh, identifying uh, drugs for organophosphate poisoning in the fourth quarter of 2019. So to disambiguate that, what that means is coming up with stuff to prevent the effects of uh, um, uh, biowarfare uh, nerve agents and uh, also certain pesticides. Uh, and so we were using the latest tech of high throughput robot screening of compounds and uh, computational uh, drug discovery and I got a call from a CIA agent who was in Wuhan, uh, and he called me on January 4th saying, we've got a problem, Robert. This is a guy that I co-published with in the past, and you'll hear more about him in the upcoming Bobby Kennedy book, so stay tuned on that. Uh, but uh, um, the, uh, we, I got the team uh, wound up and focused on repurposing agents for uh, one of the two protease inhibitors, the other one is the one that Paxlovid is focused on. Uh, so that's uh, 3CL. Um, and uh, we were focused on the Pepe and like protease, knowing that there were already multiple agents out there being tested for the other protease, um, serine like protease. Uh, and uh, we had a hit uh, in part because I became infected in late February and started out of desperation taking the drugs that we'd identified using computer screens. And that was famotidine, otherwise known as Pepsid. So that's the origin of the Pepsid story, was me self-treating and then treating another uh, local person. Um, and because of patient confidentiality, I won't disclose, but it was an individual who had significant body weight and they came through and they were uh, at high risk, uh, very high risk. So um, uh, the famotidine story has had its own torturous twists and turns, uh, and has also been subjected to censorship blocking at the CDC, I mean, at the FDA, et cetera, even though it's been sponsored by the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, the, the notable one, of course, that's been high profile is ivermectin, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I myself was treated by a physician for my long COVID, finally. I took the jab because it was purported to help with long COVID. It only made it worse, and I had some very significant side effects, particularly from the second shot, including hypertension to 230. So that could well have killed me if I, it hadn't been caught by my cardiologist. Uh, um, and the physician that treated me with ivermectin, to which I had an immediate response, uh, immediately within 48 hours had recovered stamina, etc. She's now uh, lost her license for the sin of prescribing ivermectin to patients such mm. as myself.
Uh, um, in case, in the case of uh, Pierre in the ivermectin story, as I became aware of it, working closely with uh, um, MIT Lincoln Lab and Department of Defense uh, Ditra, I uh, reached out to Pierre because he had put out a a brief summary that wasn't really written as a academic abstract and uh, encouraged him to submit it to a special volume that me and some uh, scientists from Spain had put together in Frontiers in Pharmacology focused on drug repurposing. And uh, I worked with Pierre. Um, His manuscript, finally manuscript, went through uh, multiple rounds of peer review uh, including two uh, senior reviewers from the FDA, uh, a very experienced uh, Department of Defense uh, uh, drug development uh, scientist that had industrial background, and an emergency room physician uh, that practices in uh, New York in the Bronx. So it got it got the full metal jacket of review, and uh, it was accepted finally. Uh, it was not an easy path for Pierre, uh, but we got it through. We got it, uh, you know, structured well enough, passed peer review. And then the editor-in-chief of Frontiers uh, apparently got a call from someone uh, and uh, decided unilaterally that it would not be published after the abstract had already been published and Pierre had already paid the fee uh, for the publication. Uh and uh, that's a whole story that's been covered in The Scientist and others. Uh, that then triggered a review of all articles uh, about repurposed drugs in that volume that we'd gone through the approval process. It took about two months to get approval for the special volume. And uh, then my own papers that have been submitted with other peer reviewers, in uh, one of which had fully passed, they were pulled. Uh, and at that point, uh, all of the editors of that special volume wrote a letter and uh, um, resigned, and that special volume was shut down. Uh, Pierre then pivoted to a personal contact and had the uh, ivermectin review paper published. But it, it's just gone on and on and on, the barriers to ivermectin. Uh, of course, there's this famous CDC slander that anybody in Alabama has got to find offensive uh, because they chose to use the term y'all uh, <laughs> in, in y'all shouldn't be taking this horse drug, which is absolutely absurd. Yes, I use ivermectin to wear my horses, but ivermectin is absolutely a human drug. It's one of the safest drugs in the pharmacopoeia. It's been administered to millions, if not billions of people, including by Merck. Uh, the whole ivermectin story has really been uh, quite sorted and quite a, quite an explicit example of uh, the reach of pharma Doctor? Uh, into the whole academic peer review process and the U.S. government. Uh, on the positive side, we had the story of Uttar Pradesh, uh, where um, it be it, there was initial rumors that Uttar Pradesh is a large state. I think it's about 250 million people in India. And uh, it had uh, was having a major surge of COVID in a relatively poor uh, region of the world. And uh, out of desperation, I think, they built these pill packets 
which uh, uh, were rumored to include ivermectin, and they distributed them throughout the Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, and the incidents collapsed. Then there was, uh, I don't know what was said, but the timing was odd. There was a meeting between Modi and Biden, and then suddenly any discussion of the contents of those pill packs was shut down. I had a major Indian client at the time working on a vaccine, and suddenly their physicians would not say anything about what was in those packages. Mm. I think I was one of the first to actually get a photograph of what, of one of those packages um, and, and put it out on, on, I think it was Twitter at the time, and it clearly demonstrated that uh, the major active component, in addition to zinc and some other things, was the ivermectin. Uh, so another example of an attempt to suppress information. Uh, and then there's been the Brazilian study. Uh, and the gentleman that ran that study had his house bugged. Uh, he was approached by thugs um, and harassed. I mean, the, it just goes on and on and on. These people, they have no honor. They have no integrity. Uh, they will do anything. Uh, I guess the motive is cash. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, Paxlovid, uh, and the Merck, Merck had hoped that EIDD 2801 developed at Emory was going to be a blockbuster drug, but that failed. Yeah. What uh, was that? It was, it's Molpilavir, right? Meaning it's correct. The, yeah. It's, yeah. Ra- ra- rarely prescribed now. Yeah. Um, and Paxlovid, uh, we knew cause I was sitting on the, uh, active committee at NIH, uh, as an observer. So not a voting member which is operated by the uh, foundation for NIH. It's basically a backdoor play that allows pharma and the Gates Foundation to pump money into NIH and get them to do what they want to do. Wow. Um, so I was, I was sitting on that, and they ran the Paxlovid uh, as well as the Molopiravir studies. And uh, we knew back then that uh, these infections with high birth size such as we're seeing with uh, Omicron, that being that there's a very large amount of virus produced upon upon infection, the, it overwhelms these drugs. And now we know that Paxlovid, the, the preferred uh, from you know the officialdom and, and the corporate media, actually prolongs the infection. Uh, we've seen this in the case of Mr. Biden and uh, Mr. Fauci. Um, people that take Paxlovid actually uh, are at higher risk for transmitting for a longer period of time yep. than the naturally immune that aren't even taking the drug. Wow. Uh, so uh, Paxlovid is, uh, you know, another one that's making money for Pfizer. Yeah. Dr. Malone, I mean, I've, I was, I participated in one, I have a big uh, clinical trial company here in town that I own and uh, the phase three. Um, I mean, the inclusion and exclusion criteria, everyone they're recommending it for would have been excluded from the trial, <laughs> um, which is kind of uh Interesting. Yeah, they're, they're just disregarding the uh, calling it labeling is a little uh, um, overstating because it's EUA, but uh, they're they are ignoring the uh, prescription criteria. Yes. Yeah. So give me uh, one thing I've I've had an issue with over the years, and it's kind of my deep dive into really the history of the FDA. But w- at what point did the FDA take over from a safety and industry regulation to now where they're uh, putting themselves in the patients examining with their physicians. I thought that was explicitly um, restricted from what the FDA could be doing. And, and also in, as, in terms of indications. 
as was the case with the CDC and the NIH. I mean, this is bizarre that NIH is establishing treatment protocols. Yeah. Um, Tony Fauci doesn't treat patients. Exactly. Uh, At what point did it happen? I think the big turning point in all of this corruption uh, happened uh, when the legislation was put through uh, towards the end of uh, Senator Edward Kennedy's uh, time in the Senate, uh, pushed through that um, authorized the uh, advertising of pharmaceuticals in the United States and uh, released any restrictions on pricing. Now, I had a film crew come uh, visit uh, from Switzerland and France a few weeks ago, uh, investigative journalists. Uh, it was about the RNA story. Uh, but they highlighted something for me I hadn't been aware of. Uh, if you're Swiss in this industry, it's a bit of a burn that Novartis bailed out of Switzerland and moved to Boston, moved their corporate HQ to Boston. Why did they do that? Uh, never thought about that before myself. Apparently, according to them, there was a meeting in which uh, Senator Kennedy flew out to Switzerland, met with Novartis leadership. Shortly thereafter, the legislation was passed um, that removed these restrictions on pricing and advertising. And shortly thereafter, Novartis moved its operations to the senator's hometown of Mm -hmm. Boston and in a significant way catalyzed the biotech uh, revolution that's happening in Boston right now. So there's the appearance of a quid pro quo uh, um, having to do with these key issues of pricing and advertising. And we're now in the position where pharma, through its advertising dollars, and we see it all the time, there's the notorious clips of brought to you by Pfizer. Um, uh, Pharma kind of controls corporate media, particularly broadcast media, in a significant way. And I make the case that the pharma dollars largely subsidize our elections now all the way down practically to dog catcher. Yep. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, there's so much to, to go into on that. And you look at the dangers of how it started out was like unlimited commercials on these big media outlets. Then they just started paying the media outlets period. And you don't even hear it. They're just, cause they got, they got air cover from, Every media outlet, every social media outlet, every everything was helping them with the horse dewormer narrative. Um, you know, the all well, that and stuff. there was there was over a billion dollars. We can thank Blaze Media for the FOIA. Uh, over a billion dollars in um, money funneled through the CDC yeah. uh, to promote all these false narratives on a variety of media channels. And now we know uh, because of Alex Berenson's lawsuit that uh, the White House was directly involved in targeting specific individuals for action. I suspect that'll come out in my case also eventually as my lawsuits progress. Um, The whole thing is uh, um, way beyond the pale, I think is the gentlest way we could put it, uh, in terms of right to free speech, the government colluding and making uh, media and particularly social media basically um, surrogates yeah. uh, makes it so that this is a violation of freedom of speech. These are acting as agents of the government. That's the legal case that's being made right now. Yeah, I think Alex Berenson actually has Alex Berenson has some really good FOIA stuff that he's released about the White House actively involving him being censored, which is a state meaning utilizing 
a private entity at, from a state actor yeah. is uh, basically the Jeff, definition. Jeff Rubenfeld, a uh, Yale uh, constitutional scholar, just put a uh, op-ed on this topic in the Wall Street Journal, I think, this morning. Wow. So this smacks of KGB, Soviet, communist stuff. And I was, um, interestingly enough, I've been hanging out with a bunch of uh, men full of uh, courage and uh, great people that I think God has allowed me to be surrounded by that gives me courage, but are also going to get me put on a list, I think. I was with Greg Phillips over the weekend of uh, 2,000 Mules and Dr. McCullough. Now, now you two, so I'm definitely probably going to be on a list. But a big link between these two things is the communist long march through the institutions and then them taking over and trying to push into this stuff, seeing China's involvement in all this, and China's basically bought our institutions and our the Democrat Party, and they're pushing this stuff. And there was a book that came out 20 or so years ago called None Dare Call It Treason. And I've been thinking about, as you look at, like, with the Uttar Pradesh and the White House pushing back against this stuff, it's, it's borderline. I almost want to create a documentary called None Dare Call It Genocide because you have all these people dying. There's a simple solution that could be given out. And, and again, people could take it or not take it, but there's not billions of dollars being pushed out to prevent people from taking a drug that could save their lives by their own government. And so you have a government. Yeah, I, I, I put out a, a sub stack on this together with Jill, my wife and partner, Dr. Joe Glassville Malone, um, titled uh, Adminis- uh, Ivermectin, Why Does the Administrative State Want to Kill You? Yeah. Um, I think a, a, a reasonable case can be made that at a minimum, we have hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths in the United States over the last two years because of the suppression of early treatment. And uh, it's not just ivermectin. Hydroxychloroquine is effective. And uh, there was a clear and concerted effort on the part of Janet Woodcock and Rick Bright to circumvent the direction of the president of the United States. You know, whatever you think of Trump, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, um, uh, administrative state bureaucrats working and colluding across agencies to block the will of the president is not okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I've got one more thing I want to cover, and I'm going to pretty much turn it over to to, to Jordan after that. And it is, um, we did a, a deep dive study here in Alabama. We had a, um, a um, w- what is the embalmer? We had an embalmer in Dothan, Alabama, that basically blew the whistle on the fact that he had all, he was clots. doing his embalming. What's that? The clots. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so we did a deep dive on that investigative journalists. So 1819 News, if, if you don't know Dr. Malone, we are a statewide, state-focused news and media outlet dedicated to doing real rigorous investigative journalism and exposing the corruption that's going on in our state at a state level, rather than all this effort that's focused on D.C. and global politics. We really want to fix and fortify our state and move towards a free and flourishing Alabama. So that's us. We did an investigative story that showed that, that there's all these clots and, and that particular embalmer said that it was it was at the time that the vaccine started is when these blood clots started. Other embalmers we talked to to verify that said that it was more towards the beginning of, of COVID, but it picked up heavily once the vaccines came. Can you talk yeah, about Ryan, So I direct you to Ryan Cole's recent podcasts okay. where he has uh, worked through these clots. He's been working on this for months now. And uh, there are some specific uh, diagnostic uh, pathology tests that can be run on these clots that differentiates them from normal clots. Hey, I did want to give you one shout out since you talked about the scope of 1819. Um, 
Uh, it turns out uh, the Malone family has got deep roots in Dothan. There you go. Uh, and my great, great, great uh, uh, was uh, uh, a lieutenant and then captain in Alabama 2nd in the uh, War of Northern Aggression under a gentleman <laughs> named Stonewall Jackson. There you go. Uh, so I just thought you'd appreciate that little bit of history. <laughs> there, if they didn't have enough against you, you're now related to Stonewall no. Jackson. Just one more thing, right? So, well, uh, it's not worse than that. My middle name is Wallace. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm like a second cousin to George. <laughs> and the hits keep coming. Um, all right. Well, that was um, really my um, big focus was wanting to go into early treatment and vaccines for my audience because I know that th those are going to be some of the things that, you know, it's weird. It's like coming in waves. There, if you, At first, there was just a few people that saw and understood this stuff, and then we spent our, our time and energy trying to wake others up. Jordan has been completely dedicated for the last two years to opening people's eyes on this stuff and trying to get to a critical mass of awareness of early treatment, you know, vaccines, you know, and again, my thing with vaccines, if people want to take them, you know, go nuts, freedom, all that stuff, I'm not going to do it. Um, and, and I don't want the Alabama department of public health telling it, telling people that it's safe for their six month old to get it. Like that's kind of where I'm drawing the line. It's like, okay, you know, we're, we're not going to promote these press releases they're putting out that are saying that go ahead and get your six month old, jabbed because you know when you look at it, it's like it's not even really dangerous for children to have covid i have six children about to be seven all six of my children have had covid twice and it was like a cold meanwhile you know my wife was knocked down for two weeks i was out for about three or four days um it didn't even affect my children but yet yeah no we need to get our six months old jab. yeah and and yet they also have the highest zero positivity rate even by the cdc's own data it's almost 85 percent as of february 2022 people are like what do you mean they all had it already yes yeah. Well, they had it already. And it didn't cause a big. And you didn't even notice. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. So the question I have, Dr. Malone, and this gets back to a lot of what I'm uh, looking at from the microcirculatory uh, point. Uh, I've kind of uh, pondered upon uh, Dr. Uh, Risa Pretorius as well as Dr. Uh, Doug Kell. Doug's at University of Liverpool and Risa's at a Stalinbosch in South Africa. And their kind of foundational paper proving that, the you know, this S1 subunit of the SARS-CoV-2 a spike protein um, really causes fibrin deposition without even having thrombin. And so to me, the fact that that is, is there, meaning that, they, and they can prove that that happens in, you know, in platelet-poor plasma, they basically are able to show that if you put recombinant spike protein, the, of the S1 subunit of the spike protein into somebody's plasma, you get uh, fibrin deposition that's deposited in what they're able to do is stain in an amyloid pattern. And to me, that is something that, again, has changed, not it kind of confirmed how I was treating people anyway with anticoagulants early. But um, as I've been treating long COVID and seeing the disease uh, in the kind of what I would say, I wouldn't even call it long COVID, I would call it persistent symptoms. Um, this, what we would have been told is benign and have injected the instructions and in how to make it in even a stabilized form of it into billions of people. Um, I just can't wrap my head around how that could be what our authorities are going after. Real quick before you jump in, Dr. Malone, can you tell that to my audience in English? You guys, you do, it's my job. I'm going to be the referee that goes between you guys to make sure that my audience understands what you guys are talking about. Well, so, it basically means that we know that the very thing that makes COVID pretty deadly is its vascular ability to cause deposition of clots easily. Yes. And those clots or fibrin deposition clot okay. is kind of a word yeah, yeah, yeah. in, in the parlay of public. Got it. Um, 
but it, and it makes it resistant to fibrinolysis, which is, which to me is, is that's first of all, why most people don't know how to treat COVID because they're treating it like an old viral pneumonia. It's not, it is, uh, it definitely enters through the lungs, but the damage is really caused in the microcirculation or even in the big vessels as well. And so that's blood clots getting into the blood system. So the blood stops yeah. flowing. So why, why people got hypoxic was not because their airways were full of junk. It's because the vessels that extracted oxygen from their airways were blocked. Is that correct, clogged. Robert Malone? Yeah, let's translate that further. The reason you. your lips get blue is because you have blockages in the small vessels in your in your bloodstream. Wow. And that's being triggered because spike is a toxin. Oh no, don't say that. That's not allowed. Uh, but it's true. Uh, it's what I said back on Brett Weinstein podcast with Steve Kirsch. Uh, and it was one of those truth bombs that triggered uh, the corporate media all over the world. But now we know abundantly spike is a toxin with a plethora with many, many different effects one of those is it causes blood clotting. And as the good doctor is just uh, um, telling, sharing with us, those blood clots don't get chewed up by the normal mechanisms. Uh, so they're very resistant. And what he's saying to us is, again, what you got to do is get on this right away, um, mm. treat it early before these things accumulate. Otherwise, you're likely to have, even if you get through it and you're okay, you may well have long-term consequences. And those long-term consequences we can call long COVID. But by the way, uh, technically, you can't distinguish between long COVID and the post-vaccination syndrome. Uh -huh. And a lot of people uh, under the covers kind of in the government are telling me that as they're analyzing the data, course, they're not allowed to share this. Uh, that's another topic. But it's looking to them that a lot of what's being ascribed to long COVID is actually the post-vaccination syndrome. Wow. And uh, what the doctor didn't mention is that we have to be a little careful because it turns out this stuff, whether it's in the jab or it's in the virus uh, or it's in Novavax, um, not only causes blood clotting, it causes a bunch of other things, yeah. including reactivation of latent DNA viruses. That's a mouthful. Epstein-Barr. Um, like Epstein-Barr is, is the doctor correctly identifies. And shingles, of course, uh, all of us, anybody that's had shingles will never forget the experience. My and, wife got uh, shingles after having COVID. Yeah. My wife had shingles after getting COVID at 36 years old. Literally, Doctor Tankersley treated her, and he's like, "You, this, like you, you, you're 36, and you have shingles all over your back." Literally, right after so, she had COVID. So, Doctor Malone, when it, you know the the big thing in understanding, I guess, even you know, actually, back in the day when they pulled out this mRNA technology, the first thing I did was look up the kind of review article from the NIH back from 2018. You're cited in it multiple times um, on how to actually get mRNA into the cell, but the Interesting thing was all their safety issues in their kind of review of the last 20 years of this technology. And none of those seem to have been solved when they pulled it off the shelf. It was the same issues that we are currently having today, all the way down to the thrombogenic nature of this technology. Is that it, it was that surprising to you that it was almost like we had known issues and those known issues. I, would, I wouldn't say surprising. I would say <laughs> shocking, um, uh, uh, stunning. Yeah. Uh, the willingness, they they have basically destroyed um, 
decades of precedence in clinical research and regulatory affairs. They've just thrown them straight into the garbage can. And by the way, as we put out in another substack recently, uh, there's over 80 mRNA vaccine and other studies ongoing right now using the same technology. And it appears that the FDA, and those are not related to an emergency use authorization indication. Uh, they're things like flu for which we already have vaccines and many others. And it appears that what's happened is the FDA has allowed uh, pharma, Pfizer and Moderna in particular, to bypass the normal uh, processes and tests that would be done before you ever got into man, uh, having to do with the toxicology, reproductive toxicology, biodistribution, et cetera, et cetera, pharmacokinetics, how long it stays in your body, et cetera. Um, uh, they've allowed Pfizer to lie about it, Pfizer and Moderna. They say that the RNA only sticks around for at most a couple of days. Well, the data from uh, this obscure institution called Stanford, published in an obscure journal called Cell, um, so these are two of the top in the world, uh, clearly indicates by fine needle aspiration, so that's actually sticking a needle into people's armpits uh, and pulling out cells and analyzing them, shows that this RNA sticks around for at least 60 days. But the CDC is like, you know, hear no evil, speak well, no well, evil. They, speak. You, ought to, you ought to go to their website. They just updated in July their facts about I'm mRNA. I'm very aware, yeah. believe me. And they got um, rid of that part. They, well, they didn't. Well, well, they, well on the facts. What, they, the, did, what yeah. they did was they shifted it into a Q&A section, yeah. and then they reference another university, which then says those things. So they no longer have, they've washed their hands. No. Uh, we're not lying to you, this university is, uh, but uh, we're still disregarding the truth. They've done that about so many things, it's, and the immune imprinting is among the most serious right now because they're rolling out new vaccines that are basically perfectly engineered to make the immune imprinting even worse. So going that's to that- words, That's fancy words for- the vaccines are going to make it even less likely that you can resist the infection. So going to that, and this is one of my more kind of just questions that I have a physician in terms of the MRNA, uh, the, what we would call the Omicron mixed dosing that they have on the horizon for this fall. It is fascinating to me that they still need the, what I would call the Wuhan strand in that mix. Uh, they can't just go to the Omicron. And is that because there of the immune imprinting? There is no documentation that they need it. Gotcha. Uh, what what they are using, as you point out, they were going to use Wuhan 1. That's the one that everybody's been jabbed with that is ancient, doesn't circulate anymore. That's the big problem with the immune imprinting. And then they were going to use BA4 and BA5 Omicron. Those are two strains that are on their way to be extinguished in the population. Uh, and uh, they're being supplanted by another one. I haven't put that substack out yet. That's just recently being uh, described. I forget it's BA two point something. Yeah. 2.75. Um, yeah. Yeah. And interestingly yeah. enough, some of the monoclonal antibodies are coming back to neutralize that one, but regardless, which I thought was the first time I've seen that, but. Uh, so um, uh, what they've approved, what apparently happened was that the White House told Pfizer and Moderna, we're going to buy, I think it's up to about $4 billion of these vaccines now. Yeah, they, so they doubled the price as well. They've, ex <laughs> so they've executed the purchase contract. 
And uh, the terms are that there will be no clinical trials. Mm. Uh, and these are p- to be delivered uh, before the election, surprise. Oh, my um, goodness. Uh, and uh, the, fi- the, the pharma came back and said, uh, I'm sorry, we can't make BA5 in time. Uh, and so the government said, oh, that's okay. We'll just deploy uh, Wuhan 1 and BA4. And that, in fact, is what has been licensed in the UK now or emergency use authorized. And I think they're using the uh, uh, UK population as the guinea pigs uh, rather than their usual practice of using the Israeli population, which is now increasingly resistant to taking more jabs for some reason. Uh, so that's that's the story is they're going to they're going to try to jab us all with a bivalent, so two different versions of Spike, uh, because they can't make the third one that we already paid for them to make. Uh, and the two that they're gonna jab, wanna jab us all with are two that are extinct. They're no longer really circulating in the population. As I say, I couldn't design a better strategy for further driving um, the immune imprinting or original antigenic sin problem. And the CDC, the NIH and the FDA, again, are doing the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. They won't even talk about immune imprinting, even though there are many, many, many high-powered papers from all over the world that show this problem. What is immune imprinting? Immune imprinting, otherwise known as original antigenic sin, that's a sexy one that's easy to remember, Yeah, uh, is basically the easy way to think about it um, I, I like to use a military m- metaphor. Uh, the military is always best prepared for the last war. Your immune system, yep. or, or we all learn from our past experience and it biases what we do in the future, right? Uh, we're just humans. Our immune system is like that too. So when you get exposed to a pathogen like a virus, um, your immune system will build a response around it. I don't want to get too deep in the immunology. And it will create memory cells. That's the memory of that prior exposure. And then those memory cells, when it sees something that's similar, but a little bit different, those memory cells will expand out and dominate the immune response. And the consequence of this is that the virus can evolve to kind of drift away from the part, the original response and get around it. Um, and uh, you can think of uh, it's Hitler's. The, it's the Biden the, 18 days of positivity, correct? I mean, his, his is an immune imprinting phenomenon, probably. Uh, but just so. Uh, and Justin Trudeau yeah. and, and, uh, and, and Tony Fauci and, and Tony Fauci Exer- Fauci Yeah, And the uh, and and Boria at Pfizer it goes on and on and on. And then and then as if, you know, this is like throw another log on the fire or, uh, hey, we need some more gasoline over here. Um, uh, then you throw in Paxlovid, uh, which the viruses are evolving to escape already, uh, which is why we shouldn't be giving it to everybody. And what we see is this, uh, you know, recrudescence. The virus seems to go away and then it comes back again. Well, that, is that a second infection? Hell no. Mm-mm. What that is, is the Paxlovid has driven it down to a level that you're not detecting it by the antigen test but then it's evolving to escape the pressure of the Paxlovid and it comes roaring back again. Um, And it does this again and again and again in patients. And what that means is just like with the vaccines, we're throwing a weapon uh, right into the fire to melt it down. 
uh, because uh, we're giving this drug to everybody. It's like, you know, feeding uh, antibiotics to cattle in feedlots. Uh, it's the same thing. Uh, and uh, that's just, I mean, you can't make this up. Uh, the, the stupid just goes on and on and on. So given that, I think even last year in Cell, there was a pretty good article by Emory Vaccine Center that was talking about the fact that the nucleoprotein or the nucleocapsid seems to be the one that gives, you know, what I would say a much more um, long-lasting immune response or cellular immunity. Why, given the time we've had between the current, um, you know, injections that have been gone, have we not looked at other possibly less pathogenic proteins to inject, even if you agree or don't agree with uh, the mRNA technology? That that issue was raised in, I think, the House recently in some hearings. Uh, The case is made that by overemphasizing this new technology that clearly Tony Fauci wanted to push, uh, what we've done is we've not only produced uh, the, the spectrum of adverse events, the destruction of public faith, in the entire public health enterprise system and vaccines, but we've inhibited the development of truly effective vaccines because the market space functionally is already filled by these suboptimal uh, products that are neither safe nor effective, Hmm. despite all the marketing. Basically on the immune imprinting, is that essentially we're injecting ourselves with being immunocompromised would be a way of putting that? Like we're almost giving ourselves AIDS in a sense? A form of immunodeficiency. It's a very selected, focused one. But unfortunately, the data are quite clear that these uh, mRNA products are having a a wealth of other uh, mechanistic actions on the immune system that seem to be dampening immune responses in a broader way, particularly T-cell responses, and that gets to the reactivation of the latent DNA viruses. And the, uh, you know, Ryan Cole, I think, gets the gold star for being the early uh, champion of uh, recognizing the uh, signal of uh, very aggressive cancers and unusual cancers at unusual stages of life uh, reactivation of cancer, et cetera, that appears to be associated with the inoculations, particularly the multiple inoculations. And now, you know, he was pilloried for saying this. He, he had licenses pulled. Um, he's going to have to sell his business uh, that he built up one of the largest pathology practices in the uh, Northwest. Uh, but um, now the data is coming in all over. It's still anecdotal. Uh, from surgeons, on, you know, oncologists, etc., that they're seeing these surges in unusual cancers. Now, for your audience, I don't want to in any way imply that everybody's going to die or everybody's going to get cancer. Cancer occurs at a low frequency, you know, and uh, when you see a bump in that and you see behaviors of cancer um, uh, in, in a small additional number of people, that's an important signal, and that seems to be happening, as Ryan Cole had uh, reported so long ago. Dr. Malone, given your knowledge of the of mRNA or just RNA transfection, um, would it, it have been even something you would have thought of to use it as a vaccine in this context? I mean, again, I, I, 
I, the only reason I know I about mRNA is I, I specifically thought of it as a vaccine. I have nine patents issued on using it as a vaccine, uh, and um, but the but not with the pseudouridine, which okay. is one of the bad actors in this. Uh, you know, the RNA systems and the logic that I advanced was built around the idea that the uh, molecule would last a very short time in your body. And so if you had adverse events associated with it, those would wash out of your body quickly as, as, as if a drug is cleared rapidly. And with the pseudouridine, it's not only more immunosuppressive, but we now know that it causes this product to stay in your body for a very long period of time. Is that what and they call the spike protein stabilization technology that um, the basically guys, Barrick and those guys in 2016 basically took a mirror's mirrors no, no, spike no, and no. stabilized it that's that's the payload part that's also a problem okay uh but uh the the addition of so as you know doctor uh rna has four components just like our digital bit stream has zeros and ones two components to store information rna has four different chemical compounds basically that are assorted to give the information and those are A, U, and G, and C. And uh, um, the U uh, is normally modified rarely in cells at very specific points because it regulates RNA behavior and activity. And what Carrico and Weissman did was kind of like a blunt hammer. Uh, they put uh, pseudouridine all through uh, the backbone of the RNA. So what we're dealing with here is nothing like real RNA. It's a single-stranded, I'm going to use some techie words, a single-stranded polynucleotide. So that's kind of a bead of, uh, you know, like uh, pearls on a string. Single-stranded polynucleotide that is able to be produced into protein in cells, and it sticks around for who knows how long, but at least 60 days, uh, and continues to do its business. That's, that's nothing uh, that exists in your body nor are these positively charged fats. That's synthetic, and there's nothing like that normally in your body, let alone in your ovaries if you're a woman. Um, so, uh, and I reference the which, which are the lipodanoparticles, correct? Precisely. It is the active component that self-assembles around the negatively charged bead, you know, pearls on the string. So the pearls on the string are all negative, and these fats are positive, and so they stick on each other and they kind of collapse into a complex. And it's that those fats uh, that are able to cause the complex to bind to the surface of cells and then fuse with the cell membrane and release the RNA. So that's that's the really short version of how this works. What, wasn't your history and coming up with a way to do that without your innate immune system degrading it? Is that correct on the... Say, well, the original patents did not involve pseudouridine. Okay. So the RNAs that were synthesized, and they still use the same uh, enzymes and technology and approach that I used back in 1989 and developed uh, for large-scale synthesis. Only I was making uh, milligrams, and now they're making kilograms. Wow. Uh, so it's been a big upscale. But the uh, addition of the pseudouridine kind of changes the whole thing and its behavior. And that was one of the things that the FDA specifically didn't uh, test, didn't force the pharmaceutical industry to test. And if you want to kind of put a finger on things, 
the way it works in big pharma, uh, you know, I, you've got some experience. I've got a fair amount. Uh, you never do a, a test or a study you don't have to do yeah. because you might not like the results. It's just basic uh, pharma 101. It's the ethics of pharma. They're not driven by, oh, let's prove the safety. They're driven by let's do the minimal we can to get it through the FDA. Uh, and so it's really the responsible of the FDA and the European Medicines Agency and others to force pharma to do its job. And uh, what happened here was that the FDA just rolled over and said, scratch my belly. Um, they just mm. didn't do what they were supposed to do. And they didn't force pharma to do it. And that's how we've ended up in this situation with all this, all these questions about where does the RNA go? How long does it stick around? How long is the spike protein produced? At what levels? Is there any reproductive toxicology? All that stuff, none of it got done. Um, and specifically, a new composition of matter like pseudouridine inserted into RNA would normally require quite rigorous toxicology testing not done. Uh, one thing uh, Dr. Tankersley wanted us to go over uh, with you um, is yesterday, apparently the CDC made an admission of a mistake. Can you guys talk about what that was and how we can capitalize on that? Yeah, w one thing I, I think Dr. Tankersley was, I mean, I, I think there needs to be, he's he's kind of an old Army, uh, Air Force colonel. Yeah. And so, you know, there needs to be a debrief accounting of the mistakes that have been made. And I don't think anybody's done that in a correct way. And neither do I trust anybody in the current FDA, CDC, or you know, anybody that is currently in charge to do that. But it's, it's amazing to me, the, if, if you go through the accounting of what's been done wrong and list that in a way that people go just like, you know, kind of the taxpayer kind of, you know, here's where your money went. Um, and then well, this, this is what it did, you know. Thank you for teeing up that endorsement of the upcoming book, The Lies My Government Told Me okay. in a Better Head. Uh, that I'm just, I should be editing the final version of right now instead of talking to you if, if my wife had her way. Um, uh, and if my publisher had his way. Uh, so the, the, and I just did a broadcast on Steve Bannon this morning. I'm going to be doing another one with Sean Spicer this afternoon and, and another one, I don't even remember who it is, uh, all talking about these uh, new, this new reorg at the CDC. Uh, and, um, uh, the bottom line, and you can find that on uh, our evaluation of that on our Substack. So that's rwmalonemd.substack.com. Thanks for letting me uh, put the pump in. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, uh, what happened there was that uh, quite literally, uh, members of the administrative state, one was the chief of staff of the CDC, and she's senior executive service. So this is above the GS scale. Okay. Um, this is a small, the, the, S, the senior executive service, or SES, runs the country, okay? And a good case, I believe that they functionally have captured the executive branch. In other words, mm. the president doesn't work for us. He works for the administrative state and the senior executive service, and they basically control what he does. They seem to have intervened on, on the CDC and Rochelle Walensky. And all the press that's come out for the corporate press is like, oh, Dr. Walensky did this and she's directing all these changes. That's a bunch of hooey, uh, to be gentle. Uh, <laughs> um, what happened was that her uh, 
chief of staff who's SES, and then an SES from another branch of HHS, both did separate studies. I think somebody leaked some of those study results to the New York Times because of the New York Times uh, article back on President's Day, you may remember, when they talked about the CDC has been withholding data yeah. and has been politicized. If you read that article, it completely foreshadows these uh, this reorganization. Um, and uh, strangely, the external SES that was brought in that interviewed like 120 staffers at CDC before he came out with his results, um, the person, what they've done is they've set up a committee now run by a former senior Obama official that is going to advise and direct uh, the CDC and Rochelle Walensky that, that will report to her ostensibly. Uh, the way it looks to me was she got kneecapped mm -hmm. uh, because of her, you know, the horrible polls on, on the CDC and what they've been doing and the impending November election. And uh, the, the senior executive service or administrative state basically stepped in and said, you're blowing it and we're going to take charge. What that speaks to me is a weak executive, uh, which we, I think, all can concur with, yeah. uh, that has failed to uh, act promptly. Uh, you know, we, we're aware of a prior uh, chief executive officer who was famous for saying you're fired. And I think we could have used a little bit more of that here, yeah. uh, a little more direct action. And I think that what what this is is a face saving for Rochelle Walensky. Um, and it's fascinating. Uh, the conclusions of these reports are, and remember, Rochelle Walensky's claim to fame is she's a professor of medicine at Harvard. Uh, she's not trained as a scientist. She's an MD, MPH. Uh, and... Um, it, it appears to me that what's happened is the SES has come in, done their evaluation, set up a committee. The outside SES brought in an old buddy, his old boss from the Obama administration, to run the CDC. They've set it up as a committee, which is the usual DC strategy for making sure nobody has to take any blame, right? Because it's just the committee. Uh, you can't point to any one person there. Uh, and they're going to run the CDC. And I think that this is really all about uh, um, November. And the conclusion of all of this is, remember, Rochelle Walensky, again, is a full professor, is CDC needs to be less academic. Whoa. <laughs> well, Walensky is the perfect person for that. She's never actually done anything in her life except be a professor, right, and go to school. So less academic. They need more power. They need the power over the states to demand data. Okay. Uh, there's a little problem in between there. It's called the constitution. Yeah. Um, and what else do they need? Uh, wait for it. More money. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So they need wow. more money, more power and be less academic uh, is the main conclusions of this study. I, I Again, you can't make it up, uh, but this is uh, the administrative state in action. And that's the way they think. So I'm guessing you're kind of saying these, you know this better than I do, that these SES people are, or the chief of staff of these, what we would call big administrative directors that get appointed, they're kind of like the shadow, shadow being, but, but they're the ones that really run it. And if you do a bad job, you're out. 
Yes, the mm-hmm. the kind of chief no, of staff actually, person. They they never get fired. Yeah, that's what. It, yeah, that's the thing. If you're SES, this is what Trump tried to do with Schedule F. Okay, when Trump talked about draining the swamp, he really tried to do it, and he got blocked at every move. Um, uh, in my opinion, uh, the senior executive service absolutely runs the country. Yep. They're unelected. Uh, they have more power than the executive branch. Uh, they, they blow the yeah, they they blow Congress away. I mean, you talk to Ron Johnson when he. For he, Ron Johnson, just just reminding me, Ron Johnson has sent forty-eight letters asking for information, and they they basically tell him to pound sand. A sending U.S. senator, right? Uh, they they don't care. Uh, you can't fire them, and this is and what happens is if they do something wrong, they just pat each other on the back and they say, "Okay, well we'll do it better next time." Uh, if you if you read through the the statements like the Politico, I think is one of the more comprehensive uh, that came out yesterday about all this. Um, they also have some classic kind of HR speak in there, and one of the things they're going to do is impose more. I don't know how else to say it. It's it sounds very partisan. They're going to come up with more woke policies to increase diversity. <laughs> what we need. I mean, if we could get some yeah, social credit like scores the, uh, going with these corporations, I think we would all be in a you know socialist yeah, utopian the, heaven. The, the uh, DEA, DEI that's been or uh, updated for the American Medical Colleges is um, trying to hmm. redefine health outcomes uh, based on oppression, not on uh, ethnicity or genetics. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. the same so, kind of thing. It's it's crazy. The, the training of medical students now. It's the whole thing is. I don't know how we're going to get out ahead of this. That's, uh, but and again, I'm I you know I want to be careful how far I go into saying this. I feel like it, this is all connected to a greater plan that's trying to destroy our country from within, and this is all intentional. It's all no. planned. It's all no, you know. That couldn't be. I know. <laughs> so um, nasty conspirator. Yes. So, but um, yeah. it's wild, and you even go into the election stuff, you know. And I'll just go ahead and throw you this. Will own nothing and be happy. Yeah, exactly. Which means they will own everything and be happier. So, um, but uh, I was uh, in uh, Phoenix with Greg Phillips over the weekend, and they did a massive data dump. It was an info op, basically with a bunch of stuff that they found. I'm not sure if you've heard about that. The database with the 1.8 million poll workers and all their information and all that stuff and the schematics to the voting locations and all that. Yeah, um, there's a video that's going to come out this Saturday that talks about uh, the case of the uh, um, uh, Dominion voting machines being switched. I think it was in New Mexico. Um, the, the data on all of this is is really quite troubling, I think, for most of us. Um, yeah. We were just out in uh, my life. I've just come back from almost two weeks of constant travel um, to Ireland and other places and, uh, Belgium and, um, and San Jose, Silicon Valley. And, uh, and remember that's my home state. I don't recognize it anymore. (laughs) Uh, um, the cops will not investigate broken windows, literally, uh, theft of uh, under a thousand dollars. Uh, the cops won't respond to, uh, we heard stories. We, we went to this, uh, mega church, uh, in San Jose that has had millions of dollars of fines because they would not concede to closing down the church and forcing everybody to get jabbed and wear masks, um, which they're appealing. And they just had a good uh, win on that. It was suspended. Um, uh, 
And we heard stories of elderly people who had not taken the vaccine that were dragged out of rooms in public places by average citizens because they hadn't taken the jab. Wow. California is barking mad now. I mean, there's there's a slight bit of hope. I had to fly through LAX to get back. And I and they, you know, they've got signs up all over LAX that you still have to wear your mask. And they come out over the intercom every five minutes telling people that they need to have their masks on. And I'd say probably two thirds of the people didn't have their masks on and they were unfazed by it. So, you know, again, those are people traveling through if they're in LAX, but it was still provided some hope that they're, 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 you know, hitting this still back, and people are just ignoring back it. From San Francisco to Virginia, about half of the people um, were wearing masks all Oof. the way through. And if you weren't wearing, wearing masks, they wouldn't look you in the eye. This is about tribalism now. Yep. This, this is not anything to do with science. Yep. Well, Dr. Malone, um, keep my promise. Keep this to an hour. We're right on that mark. One more time, tell us the, the places we can find you. And you said the lies my government told me is the book. That's it. And you can find that as pre-order on Amazon. Sorry, I don't have it out yet uh, for those that have been waiting. Um, thank you for your patience. Uh, rwmalonemd.substack.com. You don't have to pay. Uh, it's free information. Uh, go ahead and subscribe. But if you do subscribe, then you can participate in the uh, chats for each of the ones that we put out on a daily basis, sometimes two a day. And uh, the good news about that is it keeps the trolls down to a dull roar because uh, they don't want to pay five bucks a month. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, I, we're on Gab and True Social, uh, always RW Malone MD, but primarily Getter. Uh, okay. And I got, for some inexplicable reason, two days before I was on Joe Rogan, both LinkedIn and Twitter uh, deleted me and uh, will not let me back on. I suspect we may eventually find out that the federal government had their fingers in that. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a little curious uh, that that their, their timing and the suspicion is, uh, and I think we all have to assume, those of us that are likely to be on a list, as you were mentioning at the start. We all have to assume that they have uh, full access to our, let's say, communications, our cell phones. Absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much. Again, I feel uh, honored to be in, in, you know, in this two guys that I consider to be heroes uh, fighting against the machine. uh, And I'm, I'm glad to be fighting side by side with you guys. Thank you, Dr. Malone. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Malone. Be warrior. There you go. All right, guys, until next time, put your trust in God. Keep your powder dry.